Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Northridge. I don't know about you, but I just sense uh, a powerful energy and spirit in this place. I believe we know what that is. That is God's presence and, and uh, His love and, and grace that, that fills us. But um, I don't know about you, but it just, I kind of, there's a sense of anticipation, I feel, this morning. And, uh, and that is good. And so I'm excited. I hope that you are. So welcome. Glad all of you who are in the room, everybody who's online, no matter how you're here and joining us and listening, tuning in, thank you for doing that. Um, so we are in a series called, very simply, Shatter versus bounce. This series has been pretty heavy hitting, hasn't it? (laughs) It's been kind of hammered home because we are talking about something that is so critically important because we're, we're kind of intersecting with who God is and everyday life and how that has to merge together in our priorities. Because I don't know about you, but priorities, they get really, really practical because it's, it, we cannot run from them. What you prioritize is what you do. There, there's nobody else that you can blame for your priorities. You choose them. I choose them. We all do. For good or bad, we choose them. And so today, we're going to get into it again. Rubber ball, glass ball. The rubber ball, as we've been talking about, I throw it down, I drop it, it's made of rubber. It's made to return to you. It bounces. We can drop it, we can throw it around, we can let go of it, and it's fine. It still becomes a rubber ball. These are, most things in your life are rubber balls. Almost everything, almost everything in your life is a rubber ball. Now, you may not want to admit it, But sometimes we cherish rubber ball things in our lives too much. Glass balls, however, on the other hand, these are very, very precious few things in our lives. Almost nothing in your life is a glass ball. There are a few things. We talked about them the last two weeks. God, your faith, people, relationships. We don't want to drop those. Because those things are more valuable, they're more fragile, they can shatter, and they're much harder to put back together. Rubber ball, you can set them aside at times for seasons of life. Sometimes they should never even be picked up. Glass ball things should never be dropped. We need to cherish them. Here's the problem, though, and we haven't gotten into this a whole lot in this series because we've been in it for two weeks, but the truth is that here's what we all know. Some of you are probably wondering this and trying to wrestle with this even right now as I say this. The problem is that there are a lot of things, if almost everything in your life is a rubber ball, and there's only a few things that are glass balls, the problem is that there are a lot of important things that are rubber balls in your life, aren't there? There are a lot of things in your life that are rubber balls. There's a lot of things that you think are really, really important. You put hours and hours and hours into certain things every week because you consider this to be a very valuable thing. And I'm here to tell you it's a rubber ball. And sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes the things that are rubber balls, they have to be set aside. They have to be dropped no matter how important they are in order to cherish the glass ball things. Today, we have a story that illustrates exactly that. The reality 
of dropping a really, really, really important rubber ball in order to save something even more important, the glass ball. So, Asher, I want to invite you up. Asher Torbeck is here today. He's going to come on up. And let me just tell you this. Uh, Asher and I, uh, Asher does like all kinds of things in front of people all the time, like training and things like that. And so he's used to being in front of people, and he likes to tell stories. And so I don't know about you guys, but I hope that you packed a lunch because Asher and I can roll. Let me just tell you, we, uh, right, I mean, the truth is that uh, when we were working on this and kind of talking about, like, what should we share today, uh, oh my goodness, uh, the amount of stories that I heard, it's just just awesome. Uh, We had a good time, right? (laughs) We did. (laughs) We did. Um, So, uh, Asher Torbeck is here, and he's been a part of Northridge Church. He and his family, uh, his wife and kids, have been a part of Northridge for a very long time. Yep. And, uh, and so we're going to jump right into it because, honestly, I was joking about it, but Asher does have a lot to share, and he's got a lot of stories within his story uh, that he could share. Uh, honestly, I have no clue which stories we're going to hear today. Uh, that's the truth. I heard a lot of good ones. Uh, I will say this. I want to put a placeholder because we couldn't tell this story today. We said that this would take half an hour all by itself. Uh, but you need to gone. ask Asher about his email story. Uh, Just trust me, it'll be the price of you coming here. It'll be worth it just for that, uh, to hear his emu story, right? Uh, It's a long story in itself. You can Google me. It's on there. (laughs) You can Google it. If you find him on Facebook, he's got got the whole thing there. It's one of the best stories you're ever going to hear, the emu story. So we don't have time for that. So Asher, thank you for being willing to tell your story and just kind of uh, hang out with us here for a little bit. So let's, let's jump in. So you grew up in Appleton, Wisconsin. Yep. So tell us a little bit about that and uh, your growing up years. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I grew up in Appleton. Um, I, I grew up with a faith background. My uh, mom was one of those that made us go to church every Sunday. I was in Awanas. I can recite John 3.16 like nobody's business. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but I always grew up, always a believer. I always thought God was this little guy kind of watching everything I was doing. It's kind of how you're taught back in the day um, to make sure that I'm doing the right thing. And... During those times, um, I really have found this niche in, in sticking up for other people. So as a kid growing up, um, I was always the one that would stand between bullies. And I really disliked bullies, still to this day, dislike bullies. And picking on somebody else or singling somebody else out or things like that, I always felt this pull that it, that's what I should be doing. So uh, I had to look because I don't know if you're going to throw a picture up here. <laughs> So as a kid, uh, I started learning what a police officer was, and it really seemed like that was the thing that I needed to do, yeah, there it is, that I needed to do, um, and I felt like a police officer is somebody that, you know, stands up for people, stands in that gap between good and evil, um, and, and really is, is that person um, that when somebody's in, in chaos and having problems, um, that we can go there and help. And in case you're wondering, uh, yeah, that is the... Uh, tag for my dog's collar that I stole and put on my hat, my cool hat. <laughs> That's a, I, I also had to be legit, particularly you know? love the shorts with the outfit, in my opinion. Yeah, we're uh, working on some tactical pants there. I don't, <laughs> and the squirt gun, I don't know. So, <laughs> I had a lot awesome. more hair back then. I, <laughs> I love it. I love it. My mom's been hanging on that picture for a year. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. When I asked, I was like, because he said, he's like, yeah, I have a picture, you know, that we were dressed up when I, you know, as a police officer when I was a kid. I was like, yeah. we need to get that picture. So I love to make fun you. of myself. So yeah. we're okay, good. good. We're good. good. 
Hey, we'll yeah. make fun of you too. So yeah. we're, we're going to have a good time. All right, cool. Um, all right, thank you for the background, Asher. So uh, this is kind of your thing, stepping in to the gap for people who are being bullied, for, for people who can't stand up for themselves, whatever. Yeah. Um, so let's just take a, a, a kind of a fast forward, all right? Sure. So that was kid years, growing up years. Yep. Get to high school. Major event during high school yeah, really so impacted you, shaped you. Working toward being a police officer. I started, even started taking criminal justice courses when I was in high school. Mm -hmm. um, but I was a senior when September 11th happened. And, you know, the, the military was always an idea that I didn't really know a ton about. And I think a lot of people, um, even now, especially back then, didn't know a whole lot about that. But country was attacked. And I was a senior in high school. And I... Mm -hmm. I really felt this strong pull, number one, to get into law enforcement, but then also that I needed to serve my country. I needed to stand up for people. So I, I was a little bit stubborn on that. Another thing God was calling me to do, then I'm like, are you sure, bro? Are you sure? <laughs> God and I are bros. I, 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 I picked up on that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so get uh, off to college, went to UW Platteville, which... I mean, everything happens for a reason. I'll get to why I was there in a little bit. But I spent the entire freshman year in the dorms watching a war happen on TV, and I could not stand it. I had to get in there. I had to be part of it. And I, had to, I had to do something to serve my country. So um, I started talking to a recruiter. And the, uh, the thing about recruiters is they'll tell you whatever makes your eyes glow. So I'm like, dude, you got to get me in there. He's like, yeah, sign right here. I'll get you there. <laughs> You'll be there next week. That's yeah. not how it works. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, uh, sign up. About two years later is when I actually got to. Uh, so yeah, I, uh, I, I decided to join the military. Well, what I did is I joined the Guard, the National Guard, um, Army National Guard. And at the time, um, I didn't know a ton about the military. But they told me, you're going to be in the Army. Uh, I could be in the infantry, which is what I wanted to do. And you could still go to college and get that done, which actually worked out really well um, for me because I was able to do college. Um, but while I was at college, um, getting ready to deploy, I'd gone to training. Um, I had gone to my unit now and we're drilling and we're, we're training. And I knew that there was a deployment coming up at some point because there's a lot of soldiers getting sent overseas. That's what I wanted to do. That's, that's the whole point, the reason I got in. Um, but then my... Uh, I had my 21st birthday, which I won't get into details of that in church. <laughs> we, we all appreciate that. Yeah. And at the time, like, I was older than a lot of my peers, so I became like this guy. This guy knows what he's doing. You know, he's 21. So uh, 29 days later, there was this girl that uh, it was her birthday. And uh, mutual friends asked, like, hey, do you want to wanna get together and we'll, we'll, we'll take this girl out for her birthday? And I'm like, yeah, cool. So I get there, and I walk through the door, and I went, Ooh-wee! <laughs> that's my uh, saxophone voice. <laughs> I like the so. saxophone in your head. That's, that's good. <laughs> my wife's not in here right now, but her eyes are rolling at home right now. Yeah. She, she might be running. Actually, she's like, you know what? I made a mistake. She was nervous. So I got to sit in the back. Because I'm be like, oh. I love ah, it. So anyway, so we met. What, what did I say? We can roll, right? We, can, yeah. we have some fun. This yeah, is good. Yeah. yeah. So we met, um, and I fell head over heels for this girl. Mm -hmm. You know, I, still to this day, like, takes my breath away when she walks through the door. And now I'm in this position where I want to go to war. I fully expected that's what I'm going to do. I knew mm -hmm. it was coming, and mm -hmm. now I'm in love with this girl. And 
we, uh, we did the whole you know, dating thing, courting thing, and then uh, about eight months later, I proposed. And it's one of those things like, we were pretty young, and there was a lot of people like, are you, are you, you're, you're pretty young, are you sure? And, yeah, I'm sure that this is, this is what I want to do. Um, now, there's this looming thing in the background that I knew I was going to get deployed. And at the same time, her brother actually was also in the military. And while we were dating, he got deployed uh, and was overseas. So their family knew uh, kind of what was going on back in that time. He's also in the infantry, like a sister battalion of mine. Like it was very similar. So they knew what was going on. Hmm. So anyway, I ended up proposing um, and did the whole ask the parents, everything. And uh, literally four days after she said yes, I got a phone call. And they said, in 30 days, you are leaving for 18 months to the Middle East. And so we tell that story because it's very important to, I'm very much in love with this woman. And four days after I asked her to be with me forever, I'm going to leave for 18 months. And at the time, like, I didn't know a ton about the military uh, other than, you know, I'd been in for a little bit. Um, but I'm going to war. And I joined the infantry because I wanted to fight bad guys. There's a lot of different ways to be a soldier, but I wanted to find bad guys. I mean, that's, that's what I always was called to do. So uh, I ended up uh, four days after uh, I proposed, we, I got mobile, or, uh, got orders to go overseas. We decided to get married quick before we left for, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons that you do that, but um, so it was about four days after I, we got married in a courthouse, which we did have a, a church wedding two years later to the day, because my <laughs> wife's way smarter than me, and she's like, yeah, when you get home in two years, it'll be a Saturday. So we got married on a Thursday. Isn't that I wouldn't crazy? Have that. Yeah. Like I she have had that. worked it out yeah. like, okay, this date yeah. in two years will be yeah. a Saturday, yeah. so this is yeah. what we're going to do. Yeah. That's amazing. And she knew I was coming back, you know? I'm like, yeah, of yeah. course. That's awesome. So anyway, uh, I get on an airplane and I, and I leave. Uh, I do a workup uh, before you go overseas and then get overseas. So um, like I said, I always wanted to do this thing. Um, that's the reason I was there. Uh, we get into our area of operations and during that time there's a little bit of a transition where one unit's pulling out, we're pulling in, taking over different jobs. Um, and our primary job was to escort convoys um, throughout Iraq. So I've been everywhere in Iraq, uh, driving the roadways and that was our job. We also had a local AO, area of operations, that we would do patrols and things like that, and raids, and look for bad guys and their weapons and things like that. So um, during that time, during the transition, uh, we had just taken over. Hmm. Um, our unit was now alone. We were the ones doing the job now. The other unit had left. In nine days, it's called the TOA, Turn of Authority. Nine days after that happened, um, on a patrol, one of our patrols got hit, and we had two guys killed. And I was there that day. Um, and uh, that after that happened, you know, we, uh, we got to keep doing the job. So a couple days after that, we had another unit that was hit nearby, um, pretty bad, and I was there for that as well. And then uh, about a week after our first engagement, my truck got blown up for the first time. So when that happens that quickly, at least in my opinion, there's a lot of things that as a, as a, as a kid, you gotta, you gotta start figuring out. And I really had to pull back on my emotions. And that's the start of where this story is going, is I didn't think that I was gonna live through that. And when you're in a place where you don't think you're gonna live through something, you gotta start pulling 
emotions away. Because to be a good soldier, to be a good combat troop, you can't be, you can't be full of fear. Mm. I mean, you're definitely scared, but if you're full of fear, you're going to freeze and you're not going to do your job. So you have to live in this world of when's it going to happen? Is it going to hurt? <laughs> and you, you, you do that by disconnecting a lot of, a lot of things in your life. So, um, time goes on. Um, I always say that nine days out of ten in Iraq, we're just, you know, driving around doing our job, and on the tenth day, it's terrible. Um, my truck, direct truck, was blown up five times. Um, I've been in a bunch of gunfights and things like that, and when you're experiencing those things, like, you gotta, you gotta do the job and forget everything else. I would say the biggest challenge with uh, a soldier doing those sorts of jobs is not, like you live through a traumatic event, right? You live through mm -hmm. something that should have killed you and you get done and you're like, whoa, you know, like there's this, whoosh. all right, I made it. But the biggest challenge is get back out there. Get back in the truck. You got another one coming. You got another mission to do. Get back in there and do it. So, um, and that's where that, that emotion stuff comes on. You can't be balled up in fear. You got to get back in there and you got to do it. And I, I you know, it, it sounds traumatic, it's, but I was, I was loving it. I mean, it sounds weird to say that, but I'm an action junkie. I was pulling emotions away, but I'm like, let's get it. You, know, you want some? Let's, let's do this. Be, you need people like that. So, if you, just so you know, if you're ever in a threatening situation, this is your guy, right? Uh, this is your guy. He's right there. So, so Asher, let me, let me uh, kind of go to the end of this because you've shared a lot of stuff that I think um, it's just sometimes even hard to relate. So you get to the end of the deployment, okay? Yep. And, and you shared something about this that was kind of like, even though there was all this stuff happening, and then they said, okay, now it's time to go home. Yeah. And tell, tell us what yeah, happened with so that. Like I explained earlier, there's a TOA, the turn of authority. Well, the unit that was coming in to replace us, and like I said, you're going through this whole thing and not thinking you're going to survive necessarily, and then you're getting close to the end, and you start seeing those, you know, you start, we call it, you know, 30 days in a wake-up, or any of those that have been in the military you know what I'm saying. Hmm. And you get to the youth that end date, like you're, you're pulling back at this time. Well, the incoming unit, while they were training, uh, well, their convoy got hit, and one of their people got killed. And we had... Our last guy get killed about two weeks before that happened. Um, and so that incoming unit, unfortunately, this kid had written a letter to his dad. And he wrote a letter to his dad saying that he felt like they didn't have enough training to be doing what they were doing or something to that effect. And that, I mean, if that's how he felt, that's great that he that wrote a letter to his dad. But then the dad gets that letter. And what would any dad do? Like, how is this happening? My son got killed. Son goes to a congressman, or the dad goes to a congressman. Congressman pulls that unit that was replacing us back. And we had guys, I hadn't gone south yet to, to get out of the country yet, so I was still doing my job, but we had guys that were done, thought they were done, and got pulled back up. And they didn't give us any, any end time. They're like, mm -hmm. nope, you're coming back, you're gonna keep doing the job, commanders weren't telling us anything, just keep doing the job until further notice, more or less. And we're like, oh. mm. you know, you kind of sink. Yeah. So, um, it was about 30 days. We got extended. My whole plan was still to become a police officer, right? I'm starting to get old now. I've been, I've been gone for a while. I got to get this, got to get this college thing done and all sure. that. So I had enrolled. Uh, my wife got a job in, in Wanaki, and I, I said on the phone, like, where is that? <laughs> Wanaki. Wanaki. Actually, the first thing I said is, I'm not moving to Milwaukee. <laughs> she said, not Milwaukee, no, Wanaki. No, Wanaki. I said, where's, where's Wanaki? So... 
Anyway. So, yeah. So, well, and, and tell us about, yeah. uh, so when you come back, yeah. right, because you've been gone from Jen, yep. right? You've been doing the whole marriage thing, like, yep. from, afar. from afar. So now you're experiencing this for the first time. You're yeah. coming back in, yeah. and, and you're, you have to go for training for yeah. police officer. So, tell, yeah, tell us about that, because that's yeah. pretty amazing. So, uh, while you're overseas, I got to call home maybe once every two, three weeks, um, and only for about 10 minutes because there's a line of soldiers that all want to call home too. The, the world is a lot different now. They have cell phones and internet and all that kind of stuff. We didn't have any of that cool stuff. I was sleeping in a tent. But anyway, uh, I get home, and we had been extended, so I'm, I'm angry. I'm, I'm mad we got extended. I can't believe I just made it through what I made it through. And I was enrolled to start at Madison College in uh, the last week of August of 2006. And uh, I get there and I am three days off an airplane from the Middle East. And I'm sitting there in the back of the room and everybody, and to no fault of theirs, but everybody in the room is talking about like, oh, I did this this summer, we went and did this, and man, the parking here is terrible. That one's one that really rolled around in my head. I had to walk so far from the, oh. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there like, what? <laughs> is going on rising like, yeah just, I mean mm. I can say this because I'm many years removed but I was angry like how can you people be living like this mm. when this stuff is going on you have no idea what kind of sacrifices are happening mm. and you're just living your life now I'll jump to the end of that story real quick I had an epiphany after a, a while after that 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 is the point that is why soldiers do what they do, is so that we can live like this, so you can congregate like this, so you can live your lives and complain about the, the little things, that we have first world problems here. We do, all right? Everything is in perspective at mm -hmm. that point. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sitting in the class, everybody's talking about this, they're young kids, and instructor comes in the room and says, let's go around the room, introduce yourself, and tell us what you did this summer. Great. That was the perfect lead-in question. <laughs> oh, you got to be kidding me. So it goes around the room, and the whole time I'm thinking, like, what am I going to say? I thought about just, I pass. You know, I, I, and that, in, in hindsight, that's what I should have done, all right? What I did was not that. Uh, you don't seem like a pass kind of yeah, guy to me. I was still up here, and I was still very much like, you know, knife hands. You, you over there. You know. So it gets to me. And I will spare you all of the language because we're in church. Um, <laughs> but I was like, my name's Asher Torbeck. Three days ago, I got off an airplane from an 18-month tour in the Middle East in Iraq. The last time somebody tried to kill me was two weeks ago. And I got to sit here and listen to you guys complain about parking. And I just kind of, like I said, perspective. This is many years removed now. The funny thing about that, though, is no one talked to me for three months. <laughs> if... Just, just for you, like, introverted people in the room, just yeah. be really, really angry the first time <laughs> yeah. you walk out of the room. You're fine. Nobody will talk They're to you. Like, They're oh, going to be scared. <laughs> Thinking I'm going to, like, blow up in the back of the room or something. Like, no, man, I just, I'm not ready to be a civilian. I should not be sitting here right now. I need a little more time. This is early on in the war. Like, uh, yeah, yeah. So, anyway, that happened. Um, <laughs> that happened. <laughs> okay, so... Um, so let's let's move forward um, because we we can we can you right. can tell we could hang out in these areas yep. for a long I got time. Yeah, a lot of stories. Tell, telling a lot of stories. Asher has a, a billion stories. Um, so uh, you just you get through the academy, all that kind of stuff. Yep. 
you're getting ready, like you're officially ready to be a police officer. Now yep. you're looking for places yep. uh, to where you can serve as a police officer. Take yep. us down that During road. that time, we actually got a place here in, in Wanaki, and I learned how to pronounce it a little better. <laughs> um, but I, yeah, I started applying. And back then, like to apply to be a police officer, it's, it ebbs and flows over the years. Like right, back then, there was 189 applicants for one position. So you're kind of throwing apps at everything. Like, please, somebody hire me. Trust me, I'll, I'll do a good job. Right. Uh, nowadays, it's like maybe we get 17, and you only have to talk to eight of them. And, so anyway, um, I threw an app at, at Wanakee and they wanted to talk to me and I ended up uh, starting to work here. So, and that was in October 2008. And during just the quick end of, of police training, so you do the academy and then you get into law enforcement and then you have to go through a field training process, means you ride with another officer. So when you see two up squads in Wanakee or anywhere, there's a trainee in there, all right? We're not cool like LAPD and we roll with each other all the time. Um, I don't have the budget for that. So. <laughs> Got it. So anyway, they're going through training, and it's about three months, three and a half months, and in November of that year, I got a phone call that, hey, remember how, and I, I should back up, I was supposed to get out uh, in 2009, so my end time in service, ETS, was in uh, uh, April or whatever of, of 2009, and there's this thing back then, and it's still now, the fine print that no one reads when you sign a paperwork this, this tall when you get into the military is that... Um, if your unit's going back overseas, so are you. It's called stop loss. So I get a phone call and they're like, hey, are you sitting down? My, my squad leader, I'm like, uh, why? <laughs> he's like, we're going back January 6th, um, mm. you're heading back overseas. And I'm like, you know, at the time I'm thinking, I told my wife too much, I told my dad too much. My dad was actually on the phone with me in the Middle East we got mortared, he heard it, phones cut off, there's a combo blackout, somebody got hurt, and I couldn't call home for two weeks. And all these things are happening to the family, and I gotta tell them, like, I'm going back. Mm. I'm going back. And now I'm in charge of other people, so I gotta be, you know, out front and, and training them up. Um, I'll, I'll jump ahead for time, but spoiler alert, the second tour was so boring. <laughs> For the action I, junkie, he's yeah. like, yeah, nothing happened. This is going to sound weird, but I'm like, please, somebody shoot at us or something. <laughs> like, oh, my God. 12 on, 12 off patrols for a year. And so, mm. anyway, it was, it was almost, I call it my therapeutic tour because uh, it was so much less stuff, less things going on that uh, mm. I, uh, yeah, was able to see that the country could stabilize for a while. So, so let's um, thank you for sharing all that. And it's like, I know when you, when you hear like the first one was action and the second was like therapeutic, you go, um, that's crazy. Sounds weird. <laughs> you know, that's, sounds weird. But, um, but now take us through, you know, so you had that other, yeah. that second deployment, second you half. come back, get back into police force now, all that kind of stuff. But yep. then what, Asher, let's start kind of landing into some of that emotional stuff, some of those things. What started happening with your mental and emotional health after that second deployment you came back? You started yeah. noticing some things. Can you take us down? Well, even, before, even after my second tour, um, I was totally disconnected from society. Like, as a human being, I, I had pulled back from being a human mm -hmm. being. And the person that saw that was Jen. She, she was like, you need to get help. Like, there, this, isn't, this isn't going well. Um, you know, you really need to get it. And she really pushed me. I say that she saved my life multiple times because she made me get therapy um, between my first and second tour. Mm. And uh, so I did that and, you know, learned how to deal with a lot of things, learned how to, you know, it, 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 whatever, it's okay. Um, but uh, now I still got to do the job. And when I came back and became a police officer, now it's different. 
Wanakee is a lot safer than, you know, Iraq, but <laughs> luckily. That's, that's good. <laughs> that's very good. But you're still going out and dealing with stuff. And I always said, like, I get to keep the knife sharp because I'm still out here protecting people. I'm still responding to emergencies. I'm dealing, still dealing with crazy things. And, and I was just living the dream. But because of that, I was still disconnected. And I, I see it now, but at the time I didn't. And you know, a lot of problems with soldiers when they come back from uh, fighting a war is that they really have the problem turning that stuff back on and they start to feel like they don't have a mission anymore and they, they disconnect. I have had 10 friends commit suicide uh, that, I, that are my brothers that I served with and I was determined that that wasn't gonna happen to me and I needed to keep that knife sharp so that I could I'd still do the job and be a, be a good cop. I just wanted, God wanted me to be a good cop and a good soldier. So I was determined to do that. Mm-hmm. Well, going through the day-to-day, um, there's a lot more that happens uh, than, than a lot of people realize. And you see too many movies and too many things where they're like, you know, a soldier or a cop, all of a sudden they fall off this cliff and they're just, you know, they got PTS and they're, they're, they're crazy or they're, you know, you get really bad into alcohol or drugs or whatever the case may be. But the reality is for most of us, it's a slow burn. You start pulling back those emotions, you start chipping away at your humanity, and those things just start disconnecting. And the problem is keeping those to relate back to the people you love. So I was, in my opinion, a great cop. I came to work every day, I felt like I was making a difference, I was mattering, I was making things happen, I was sticking up for people, mm-hmm. but the problem was I would go home and I was not that anymore. I was completely disconnected from my family. I would go home from a shift after dealing with something crazy, somebody dying or, or something, and I would come home and I would not want to talk to anyone. Don't talk to me. Just, just leave me alone. I, I need to be alone. I don't want to connect with anything. I don't want. Well, obviously, that doesn't work out well when you get kids and a, uh, and a wife. wife. And I give Jen a lot of credit because she really did, did stick with me. I mean, I, I put the job first on so many levels. Mm-hmm. There were times that, uh, you know, would work would call. I was going. I was, call me in. Call me for advice call me whatever, and I would always answer my phone. I'm always there, always kind of on edge. I would get up and go to work in the middle of the night when something was going on. Or, But I wasn't that way with my family. And you start to feel like, why is that? You know. And there was a pretty significant event that happened within the last year um, that I was really struggling to find emotion. But I had a, I had a child die in my arms. And I go home from work, and now I'm trying to sit down at the dinner table and talk to my family. And I was mostly concerned because when that happened, I, I barely, I, I don't know what to feel. Like, I didn't know what to feel. What is, what is the right thing to feel? Everybody else that was there was, you could tell, they, they were feeling things, but I wasn't. So I bounced this off my wife and, you know, sitting at dinner table conversation like, hey. <laughs> it's a great dinner conversation. How was your day? Oh, I had a kid die in my arms today. Mm-hmm. And honestly, like, I think I said that because I wanted, this is going to sound weird, but I wanted her to feel something so that I could see it and see what I was supposed to feel. Mm-hmm. And that was a huge breaking point. Jen had been asking me for about three years to, she's like, you're pulling away from everything. 
you're doing a good job on the street. You're not doing a good job at home. Like, you need to do something else. You, need, you can do anything. And I'm like, there's no way. This is what God wanted me to do. This is my purpose. I felt it my entire life. I stole my dog's dog collar, right? But at some point, it's just, it's just not worth it anymore. Mm-hmm. You start hanging on to things that don't, that don't matter in the, in the grand scheme of things. And it, it really came to head in this last year. And uh, finally, Jen said, I don't know if we should be together anymore. And that really hit me. Like, how, how could that be? How, how could that possibly be? And it was a connection thing. Like, I was so disconnected. So um, I had a decision to make. And I had to decide whether my job was worth my family. Now, there's an obvious answer to that question, but I struggled with that a lot, and I still kind of struggle with it. But the, uh, the reality is I had, to, I had to walk away. I had to give up what I was doing, and I had to save my family. I've always been a man of convictions. I want to get things done. I want to get things accomplished. I want to do the best I can, and I was always trying to be the best soldier, the best cop. But now God wants me to be the best dad and the best husband, mm-hmm. and that's what I need to focus on. Um, so I resigned from the police department and honestly, like it was a very tough decision, but I don't regret anything. It was the right thing to do, um, because the connection I have again, even in the last few months with my family is unbelievable. (laughs) I'm becoming a human being again. It's really hard when you pull all those things away for so many years to start plugging them back in, and, but it is possible. And that's where I'm at. I'm starting to plug those things back in. Like, I have so much more energy. Now, I come home from work, I don't want to talk to you, I don't want to do anything, I just want to be left alone. But now I come home from work and let's go play catch. You know, let's, let's do this, let's do that. I'm joking with the family again, and Jen and I are very much connected again, and things are, things are coming back. Um, and I just never expected that. And I'll, uh, I'll tell a story of, of being in this room because I was in this room shortly after I resigned and I was really, really confused by God. Like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? What are you telling me to do here? This doesn't make any sense, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I love how it's bro. <laughs> and uh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I was really, really struggling with that. And I come in here and sit down in service. And a side story, I had talked to Pastor Nick and before the service started, I'm like, hey, I need to... I need to talk to you afterwards. It's something totally different. Like, I need to talk to you about something we're working on, ministry we're working on. And he's like, yeah, okay, just come find me after. I'll be standing in the back. And I'm like, all right. So then I sit down, and this was the, the uh, potholes sermon. And I'm sitting there listening to, it was like God was talking directly to me and saying, like, this has been your life, dude. You're putting patches on all these little things and you're trying to make it work, and now the truck is bouncing all over the road, all right? And I'm, I'm listening to Brent, and I was trying my hardest not to make eye contact with him, because, like, don't cry in church, don't cry in church, don't cry in church, don't cry in church. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was rough, man, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was exactly what I needed to hear. And, that, and it was only a couple of days after I made the decision to walk away from my dream job that now I'm sitting here and God's talking directly to me, telling me it's going to be okay. You have a new road ahead of you. You can do whatever you want with it. And it just, that really, really clicked with me. 
And so after the service, I, uh, I go walking back. And, and like I said, I was, I was the whole time like, keep it together, keep it together. <laughs> and I go walking back to talk to Pastor Nick. And I was so overcome by everything mm-hmm. that I just experienced that I couldn't even form words. And I'm just kind of looking at him like, Tears started coming to my face, and he could see it, luckily. Thanks, bro. <laughs> because he's like, let's go, let's go over here. Like, what's, what's going on? Like, what? We need to go somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and he was the first person outside, obviously, the police department and the, uh, you know, my wife. He was the first person that I, that I told that I just, I just walked away from everything that I thought I was supposed to be in life. And... He did a great job kind of guiding me through that. We, we met up later, and, and so did Brent. And, you know, obviously I reached out to them and told them what was going on so that they're aware. And uh, so Brent calls me one day. I'm going to tell a joke about you now, man. <laughs> Fantastic. Up. And that's all the time we have. So, <laughs> yeah, <I'm> just... <laughs> Look at yeah. the time. So he calls me up, and he's like, hey, remember that story that, uh, you know, you – you, you, the super vulnerable story where you walked away from your dream job and like almost lost your wife and you, uh, yeah, you want to tell that in front of a couple hundred people? Twice? <laughs> and we're going to record it forever. <laughs> Absolutely. Immortalized uh, on the internet. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, this is my conduit to God, right? So he's asking him to ask him to ask me. Let's do this, bro. <laughs> Let's do this. So here I am. It's so when you talk about the glass ball, rubber ball, that really resounded with me as well. Like I was hanging on to something that was so important to me, mm. but I had something in my other hand that was way more important to me that I was just overlooking. And I, I can't even express how, how much it makes, makes sense in my head. Mm. And I've found a way to start to reconnect. And obviously I shared that with him and he wanted me to share that with you. <laughs> Can you give uh, Asher a hand? That's amazing. Thank you. Powerful? But the question is, how many of you need to make the same choice? It's not easy. Asher, was it easy? We cherish so many things. Even a job that you thought God told you, you have to do it. One of the hardest things I know Asher ever had to do was to make a decision to drop this that he thought God had created him for in order to cherish this. I don't have to tell you what Jen and his kids think about that decision. 
It's easy when you think about it. It's easy. Asher, thank you for sharing vulnerable story twice on the internet. But seriously, thank you for your service, your willingness to stand in the gap against evil. It's awesome. I mean it. Thank you. So where are you guys at? What do you need to do? What difficult decision do you need to make today? What's the decision that you have to make? Don't put it off. That slow burn that Asher talked about, that slow burn, that's the problem, isn't it? When it happens like that, then it's obvious. But when it's the slow burn, you don't even realize you're there. And so, what do you need to do? Are you willing to make some hard choices to put some of these rubber things down so that you can focus on the most important things? Your faith, your relationships around you. Those things are going to last forever. These other things won't. What do you need to give up? What do you need to, need to focus on? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for everybody who's here, who chose to, to engage today, whether in person or online. They're here. They, they sense that they need to hear something from you, God. Just like Asher that day with, on that Sunday, he had already made this really, really hard choice, but he was still clearly struggling with it. There are choices right now that need to be made, right now. God, I pray that whoever is in this space, anybody in this room, anybody online who's listening to this right now, that right now they would choose to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm going to drop this thing so that I can focus on this more important thing. I'm going to drop this. I'm going to let this go. I'm going to put this aside. No matter how important this is, it might be alcohol that needs to be cast out and put away. Maybe there's some in here, they've been, somebody's been struggling with that for years, maybe for decades, and they know, they've been, they keep going back, they keep going back to it, and it affects who they are. They need to give it up entirely, God. Maybe you're calling them to do that. I pray that they would have the courage to throw it down, to empty their house of it if they have to, whatever extreme measure they need to take to get rid of it. Maybe there are some that are kind of like Asher, that their job is getting in the way of the most important things. No job is worth sacrificing relationships with the people that matter the most. I pray that you would help them to take the courage to set it down. God, you have called us to greater. You have called us to amazing greatness in this life. But it, that greatness comes from focusing on the most important things in life. Spending our time and investing our energy into those things. They're going to last forever. And so, Lord, we surrender ourselves to you. We lay ourselves once again to you. 
to do what you have called us to, to invest in what you have called us to invest to. We lay it at your feet, God. We trust you. We place it on your shoulders, at your, in your hands, at your feet so that we can focus on the most important things in this life. Help us to draw a line in the sand today. Make the choice, make the decision, make the commitment today. Whatever we need to do, help us to have courage to do it. We pray this and ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.